Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. By the end of the day, you're probably feeling pretty burnt out, tired, after work, uni, study, anything. So how do you get by when you're feeling exhausted before you even start the day? Like when the thought of just getting up and having a shower is enough to make you cry. And I'm not talking about your run-of-the-mill tiredness, you not being a morning person, just wanting to press snooze. I'm talking about debilitating fatigue, chronic fatigue. We will be speaking about this in a bit because it affects so many young Australians. Also later, you're going to meet the animal with the longest neck of any animal that ever existed. And spoiler, it is long. It's huge. You won't believe it. First though. Hack. Residents forced onto rooftops and streets inundated with floodwaters. Homes, pets and possessions left in their wake. On Triple J. You know, after the past year, it's pretty hard to be surprised by any news about floods because we've seen some extraordinary things. But did you know there's so much water, flood water, covering northern Australia at the moment that you can see it from space? Northwest Queensland especially has been going through some hectic flooding and some of these communities are so remote that even though the waters peaked days or weeks ago, we still don't know exactly how extensive the destruction is. April McLennan's been working with the team at ABC Mount Isa for this update. The tops of trees and the roofs of houses poke out of a muddy brown inland ocean of flood water that's inundated parts of Queensland's Gulf of Carpentaria. But yeah, there, there is quite a bit of damage, particularly to people's homes and uh, properties. Fortunately, there have been no lives lost. That's Mangu Jari Yana. He's currently in the isolated outback community of Burketown in northwest Queensland. And there's still quite a lot of water around and because it has mixed with some of the sewage and just um, the flooding itself, there is bacteria in the water. So the council and the uh, local rangers have made it known to the community not to be wading throughout water for various different reasons, including, you know, there are still animals, snakes and crocodiles that um, can be in those waters as well. Up here, the communities are small, but that means the impact is enormous. About 40 homes in Burketown are thought to have been flooded, which is huge when you consider only a couple of hundred people live there. I think the fear of uncertainty was quite significant for a lot of people. I think that's why many people did decide to, for various reasons, um, including, you know, being elderly, sick or having young children, decide to um, relocate and evacuate. But yes, many of us did choose to stay behind to be able to care for those of us who were here still and who were working on the ground, as well as looking after people's homes, belongings, animal companions as well. Look, I know we've heard it so many times over the past year, but locals say these floods are also unprecedented. And because these communities are so remote, we still don't know the full scale of the devastation. Sitting along the banks of the Gregory River, a small Aboriginal community of Bidungu was fully evacuated. The town's made up of about five houses, one shed and a generator. Natalie King's lived in the community her whole life and reckons they won't be able to go back to their homes for a couple of weeks. The main priority is that we need the food, we need cleaning stuff. Like, to go back down home is we need all these stuff now. Like, we'll, we'll need linen because of the mildew that's gone right through everything. We need everything that's needed in a household. Inside and outside, there's going to be a big, big day of work for us. Clean up just our own little community, you know? For some of the people who decided to stay in these towns, they're now trapped, with road closures meaning there's no way in or out. 
police took out that dinghy to help rescue locals whose homes had been inundated by the water. How are you guys going for the water levels? All through the yard? I'll come back pretty soon to check on you and I'll get you up to the evac point. In many communities, power, water and sewage systems are no longer working. You know, those communities have been blocked off, off and on since about mid-December of 2022 uh, during this wet season. That's Superintendent Tom Ahmed from the Mount Isa Police. He says food and water has to be choppered into these areas that are hard to reach. We're thinking uh, that if the um, wet season stops now, we still have at least a four-week uh, time lag before those river systems are fully down and, you know, the road networks are checked for us to be able to get vehicles into, into those areas. So it's still going to be uh, some time yet. But choppers aren't just being used to drop supplies. Farmers have taken to the sky in mustering helicopters to look for their stock. While they've been able to move some cattle to higher ground, it's believed more than 10,000 head of cattle have been lost. In absolute desperation, some farmers have been risking their lives, swimming through croc-infested waters to cut fences to give their cattle the best chance of survival. Especially when you run out of power, all you can, all you can hear is just the water running and then, you know, after a while you start hearing stock crying up. Because either, you know, they're, in, they're cold or they're swimming away, but you can't do much, so it's not as... Um, you know, it's mentally drained, just seeing, hearing all that. That's 21-year-old Grazier Shannon Camp. His family were evacuated from the Floraville station in the Berkshire after their property was inundated by floodwaters. Well, my house, I had to go in there to get some um, clothes and stuff that wasn't wet. It was probably at least a metre of water through my house and just, oh, just seeing, you know, just that's hurts a little bit when you see your child's toys just floating around. But, you know, it is what it is, but at least no, no lives were lost. That's the main thing. You, you know, clothes and all that stuff you can buy back, but you can't buy back a life. For many, their homes have been left devastated, with floodwater soaking carpets and washing mud up the walls. Family photos and important documents now destroyed. Back in Burktown, Mungu Badijari says communities won't recover anytime soon. Months, if not years. I mean, they've put out estimates of, you know, millions of dollars worth of damage um, to the area. So, you know, I don't think we'll ever really fully recover. What we can do is just yeah, try to come together and do the best we can um, and just rebuild together as a community. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. And hey, a big thanks to our mates in Mount Isa for their help too, our colleagues at the ABC. Let's speak to someone impacted by the floods. It's so widespread that it's not just Queensland. It's other parts, the Northern Territory as well. And Ben Olszewski works in the NT as a contractor. He does building work, maintenance. He's based south of the areas that we've just been hearing about near a huge cattle station called Lake Nash. Now, it might be hard for some of you to imagine the scale of Lake Nash, but this is not just a farm. It's a property that stretches 1.2 million hectares along the NT Queensland border. It's massive. And Ben's been sending his drone up around the area, getting some incredible pictures and footage of this flooding. He's with us now. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, you're welcome. How are you going out there, firstly? Lake Nash, are you waiting for the worst of these floodwaters to move south? What's it looking like at the moment? We've had the, the high water mark, the extreme flooding, um, has passed us now. It's sort of reached its high water mark on, on Monday. 
but the flooding is going to be hanging around for ages. There's just so much more water to drain off that top country. And yeah. pe- people will see in the pictures you've taken, it's just hard to really put into perspective how much water and how much land's been affected. Are you able to describe, Ben, what you've seen with your drone? The, the levels are higher than certainly, well, I've ever seen. So because the country's so flat, you can imagine too that as it comes up, it just spreads out uh, just exponentially. Um, so the, there's just enormous coverage. There's areas that you've just never seen, like so, again, like I said, in our lifetime. So it's going to take I'm guessing, well, we're all guessing here. Um, our guesses are collectively maybe six to eight weeks till we can get back through the river and wow. you know, access services in, in Mount Isa. We've been cut off actually from the earlier floods, the normal floods, since the 23rd of December, so it'll be a long time. Well, that's right. Um, and I mean, people may not realise if they're in different um, parts of the country, you know, the wet season hits hard and then this is on top of that. Yeah, this is a like an extension. It's, it's probably, our wet season's normally from from October through to March somewhere. Um, this is just seems, I mean, look, the bomb gave us a good heads up last year. They just said, look, expect above average falls, above average in the catchments, etc. We were expecting more, but yeah, here it is. Ben, what made you think to send the drone up? I'm guessing you probably do it every now and then when it's not flooding, but you've decided to put it up and were you surprised by what you saw when you got all the footage back? Yeah, some of it I was. I mean, we we had some warning. There's a, like a, um, a network of people that work in the bush that use social media or even just texting each other. It ended up being, for two other reasons as well, the station was then preoccupied with evacuating um, its staff and, and this gives an opportunity to create a record for them. But we had a, a lot of people in the community here, especially some of the oldies. They just didn't know and they were frightened and, you know, you can explain a lot. But when you show someone a picture of where you are in relation to what's coming, that alleviated a lot of stress. That's really so, interesting that, you know, seeing the pictures maybe helped people process a bit what was going on. 100%. 100%. And I've had messages from station workers, parents and girlfriends and boyfriends and whatever, just connections and stuff, just saying thanks very much for putting that stuff up because, you know, they gave us some context as to we couldn't get a hold of our families. Now we just, you know, we gave, got an idea of, of what's happening. So, yeah, it just ended up really beneficial to a lot of people, actually. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Ben Olszewski, uh, who's uh, he works in the Northern Territory. He's taken incredible shots of the flooding hitting Northern Australia at the moment. Ben, how close-knit are these communities that are being affected by flooding in Northern Australia at the moment? I mean, if you speak for your own, are people already pulling together, offering support? Like, what's it like to live in such a remote part of the country? They are. What it kind of looks like, there's the wet season is a, is a common thing. So we are generally, not, not every year, but, but the, by far the majority of years, we're, we're cut off for a period of time. People help each other out. People just prepare for that type of thing. At the moment, there's, well, there's services here in the community which are um, reaching out to the station. But <laughs> at the moment, I think the uh, probably just got to wait for the, for the, well, the station has to wait for the floodwaters to come back and, you know, for things to dry out. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you think that these flooding disasters getting 
that attention it deserves because, I mean, I guess there's a risk that people will think, well, you know, it happens, um, Not obviously not like this, but flooding does happen, wet seasons happen, maybe locals are used to it. But what do locals think of how this is being handled? Well, to, to be fair, I couldn't speak for all the locals, but the ones, you know, that I've spoken to, etc., they're relatively well informed about what's going on. And you're right, there's a an element of, well, this is what's happening. But there's also a, a very... Uh, relatively clear knowledge that there's people, for example, up, you know, Urundangi is now underwater. Urundangi is a little town in Queensland, um, about 100 k south on the Georgina as well. There's a lot of people here. These people aren't exclusively from from here. They've got connections all over the place. There's <laughs> definitely some some things the stores could use some support with, but we're not starving. Uh, we've got power, a sewer systems working. We've got water. On those terms. We're pretty grateful for the services that are being provided. Well, look, it's good to hear that um, things are going okay for you at the moment. Obviously, people are going to be keeping an eye on the situation, but we are very thankful for you taking the time to speak with us, Ben Olszewski, and for your um, incredible pictures. No worries. Thanks very much. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, if you want to see some of Ben's uh, shots, they are just pretty spectacular to see the scale of the flooding across the landscape. We've chucked some on Hack's Instagram, so you can go check them out. Hack. I couldn't work anymore, couldn't exercise, couldn't go on dates with my partner. Chronic fatigue syndrome can ruin your life. On Triple J. You know that feeling when you just can't get out of bed? You're so tired, flawed, just need five more minutes of sleep. You know, some people feel that level of exhaustion every day. It's not just tiredness, it's chronic fatigue. About a quarter of a million people live with this invisible condition. If it's you, let me know. We're already hearing from so many people on the text line. You can message in 0439757555. Tegan in Gippsland says, I have chronic fatigue and have recently started working full-time. It's painful, but I simply can't afford to work part-time or casual. Another person, I've got chronic fatigue syndrome. I used to play sport multiple times a week on top of school, study, can now barely manage looking after myself and working part-time. This is a condition that affects so many of people. There is a fair bit of research going into it, especially now post-COVID, because the symptoms match up with people who suffer long COVID. And findings of world-first research from an Australian uni have found that the brain stem of people who have chronic fatigue syndrome is enlarged, and that's just like people with long COVID. Kimberly Price has more. We all get tired, but when I get tired, it might be a bit different to when you've had a big day. That's because I've got something called myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's a mouthful, but you probably know it as chronic fatigue syndrome. I first got it when I was 19, in the prime of my uni days, and just after I had glandular fever. In the beginning, I was bedridden, only leaving my room to shower and eat. I don't exercise as much as I used to because it makes me too tired. After work each day, you can normally find me on the couch or in bed. I have body aches around my joints and I carry a jumper around to help with that. It's been over seven years, but still, whenever I'm sick or run down, I have a flare up. And while I've learnt to manage my chronic fatigue pretty well, even if it means napping at festivals, seriously, others aren't so lucky. So I don't nurse. I finished my diploma of nursing and I never used it. To me, that was just so unattainable. Charlotte Stokes had glandular fever at the start of 2021. Little did she know that was just the beginning. I was told to be cautious, to not push myself, and I thought I did that, and 
wasn't the case. The 24-year-old's chronic fatigue is triggered by viral infections. So when she's sick, it gets pretty bad, but day-to-day -day life is also a struggle. My battery just never gets fully recharged. I'm always running on low. On good days, I'm probably running at like 50, 60%. Charlotte's given up her nursing dream because at this point, she can barely get through cleaning her house. For a long time, there wasn't much awareness about ME-CFS. And many sufferers, including myself, have been told by friends, family, even medical staff, that they just need to get more sleep. A lot of doctors, because they don't know, it's very brushed off. But in a world-first study at Griffith University in Queensland, researchers have linked the brain structure of people with ME-CFS with those diagnosed with long COVID. When you talk to the long COVID and ME-CFS and saw the brain fog, it's very hard to make the decision. Another one is the fatigue. They have got the pain, body ache, and it's even the breathing difficulties. That's Dr. Corinne Thapalia, the Griffith University researcher looking into this. The study involved 28 people between the ages of 18 and 65, eight with long COVID, 10 with ME-CFS, and 10 healthy volunteers, and found through MRIs that the brainstem of those with long COVID and ME-CFS were significantly larger than the healthy patients. Researchers believe the similarities in the brain might explain why people have the same symptoms, and maybe that'll help with treatments. I've shown that LDN, lower dose naproxen, would be beneficial for ME-CFS patients. And this finding will fast track the treatment of long COVID. The treatment of a low dose naltrexone could be the answer for people with ME-CFS and long COVID. It's a drug normally used to treat alcohol addiction and opioid dependence and improves cognition, fatigue and pain. Australia's first clinical trial will start next month and Dr Corinne will also expand his research. I just think that it kind of sucks that it's gotten to the point where a large sample of people are suffering for people to have to do things about it. For people like myself and Charlotte, it's honestly a relief that medical experts are researching ME-CFS. Even just like hearing that they've kind of found more solid physical evidence is, I suppose, really hopeful. But above all, it's reassuring to know this debilitating illness is now being taken seriously. Having any chronic illness, such an important part of that is feeling validated. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price with that story, a lot of messages coming through still. We've got Tay in Melbourne saying, I've had chronic fatigue syndrome my whole adult life. I need a wheelchair primarily because of the lack of energy to be able to walk. On bad days, I can't even sit up in my bed. Another person, Ebony in Gippsland, says, I've been suffering from chronic fatigue for 11 years. I've lost many friends and relationships along the way. I'm glad that people are paying attention to the sufferers missing from their own lives. Let's find out a bit more. Professor Sonia Marshall-Gradiznik is from Griffith Uni. She's an immunologist and knows a lot about chronic fatigue, and she is with us now. Sonia, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks very much for having me. Do you think there are a lot of people living with chronic fatigue syndrome out there and don't even realise it? Well, it's a good question. I think, first and foremost, if you look at chronic fatigue syndrome, it's also really recognised internationally as ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. That's the recognised illness. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the prevalence, it's between 0.9 and um, 3%. So in Australia, there's about 240,000 people who are affected by ME. But the problem, as you've just touched on, is 
There's no diagnostic test. So recognition as having a disease is very hard. So when you ask, well, do you think there's people out there? Yes, most certainly. They are having symptoms of um, unexplained fatigue, but importantly, they've got cognitive problems. They've got memory problems. They've got cardiac issues. They're hallmarks as well as immune changes and sleep disturbances. And because um, there's no diagnostic test, people then go, oh, well, you're just tired, but it isn't. It's actually there's an array of multi-system symptoms. And for that reason, there are people out there that are um, having this disease but are just going on because people are telling them, oh, you'll just get over it. not the case. Look, we've got a message coming in from Connor who says chronic fatigue syndromes prevented me from finishing a uni degree. It's forced me to give up on opportunities to do my dream job and it means I can't go and play the sports I loved to play before I got sick. I mean, we were just talking then about people who may not even know that they've got this condition, but then there are the people who have been diagnosed, Sonia. Is it also a thing where there is still stigma around it and people won't talk about it because they're worried that others won't fully understand what it is? That's right. And and we see that with all the participants um, that we have here at Griffith University. We've been studying this for 10 years. And what we see is patients are reluctant to disclose it to their employer. They're reluctant to also tell their friends because um, a patient said once to me, look, if you've got a broken leg, people can see it. But this is very much an invisible disease. And for that reason, you know, if you don't look sick, well, then how can you actually be unwell? And that's the problem. At ME, you go up and down. And those um, peaks and troughs are related to how people extend themselves, what they're exposed to. So they're very sensitive to chemicals, very sensitive to perfumes. They can't travel. They cannot do exercise. Uh, And and for that reason, um, it, it becomes quite a vicious cycle. So you are contained, participants or patients are contained within a very small group that really understand the illness and they don't disclose it to the wider um, community that they're involved in. And are there there good treatments available or is it still pretty hard for people living with this to get relief? Well, the important part is there's no universal treatment available. There's been a number of treatments tried. But if you look at there's no diagnostic test and here at Griffith University we've been the first to actually hone in, if I can say that, and and find the potential pathomechanism or the origin of this illness. And so what we've done here is identified um, a group of receptors, or we'll call them flags, for example, or a lock and a key, and we found that the lock going into the key is faulty. And though the lock and the key are on every single cell in the body, so in the brain, they're on cardiac cells, muscle cells, kidney cells, they're located in every on every cell of the body, and we've found they're faulty. And what happens is those um, lock and key can't bring calcium inside the cell. So if you take a cardiac cell, which requires calcium for contraction, there is um, less calcium potentially going in with identified, which then causes changes in cardiac function, which MECFS patients report. So you say, well, what if that's the pathology, what's the treatment? And You touched on it. So here at Griffith University, what we've been doing is looking at, and Kieran um, touched on it, we've we've reported that um, through very controlled laboratory experiments, 
we looked at this locking key and we realised sitting beside the locking key was a gatekeeper and it's um, a receptor and it's part of uh, the receptor family that basically uh, is activated by low-dose naltrexone. So we found the gatekeeper actually when you give low-dose naltrexone in the laboratory to ME patient cells, it actually restores um, the function of these cells and lets calcium back inside. So the lock and the key works, so to speak. Okay, that's really interesting stuff. It's also interesting just to hear about all the research that's going on into this. Look, I wish we could keep chatting, but unfortunately we are out of time. Professor Sonia Marshall-Gradiznik from Griffith University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. And we've got a lot of messages uh, coming through at the moment. Uh, We've got uh, Georgia in Nam, Melbourne saying, I've had chronic fatigue syndrome for seven years in my teens. I've had COVID three times. Uh, Just a horrible, horrible situation. Hack. We're seeing it for the first time in 66 million years. I think we got ourselves a dinosaur. On Triple J. Dinosaurs fascinate us. Like, it seems like every week there's a new fact that's unearthed or even a new kind of dinosaur that's dug up. Now scientists reckon they've confirmed that bones from a dinosaur found decades ago show it had one of the longest necks of any animal. To put it into perspective, six times longer than a giraffe neck. What the hell? This is so interesting. I want to get into it. Dr. Matthew McCurry is with Australian with the Australian Museum. He's a vertebrate paleontologist. He's with us now. Dr. McCurry, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Hi. These dinosaur bones were found in the 1980s. Why did it take so long for scientists to confirm that the neck was so long? So, look, this is actually pretty common. So, um, museums, you know, have these large collections of fossils and often, um, you know, things are collected and and put into these museums, but it's not until decades later that we actually learn a lot from them. Okay. And, I mean, do we know much about this dinosaur in particular? Yeah. So, this dinosaur is called Mamenchisaurus. It's a, um, a large sauropod dinosaur. Uh, there has been a considerable amount of work done on this species. So, Um, We've known about uh, members of the genus for about, um, well, since about the 1950s. Um, And this study's actually gone back and looked at some fossils that had already um, been described in a publication to try and learn a lot more from them. It's really interesting because there's like some artist's impressions, perspectives of what this dinosaur would look like. Matthew, I wanted to ask you, there are always these pictures like, oh, this is what it probably looked like. How accurate are they? Like, could we actually be getting all of this wrong? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I find most exciting about paleontology is we don't know everything. Um, So, you know, these fossils, they're often quite fragmentary. Normally, we only have bits and pieces of the skeleton, um, and there's a lot that we don't know. And so these artist reconstructions, um, I guess, do take a lot of creative license, um, (laughs) and they can, you know, they can add to to what we can say for certain. So how can bones and fossils tell us what something like the skin, for example, looks like? Or how do you figure that out? So a lot of the time we rely on closely related species that are are preserved, I guess, in more detail. So um, in some circumstances, we can have soft tissue preservation in fossils. um, And that can tell us things about, you know, whether it had feathers or scales. It can also even tell us um, occasionally what colour dinosaurs were. And so a lot of what we know about uh, what dinosaurs look like actually come from not, you know, one individual species themselves, but 
um, by making um, inferences based on the, the whole group of dinosaurs. Okay. Um, this dinosaur in particular, the neck is very long. We've established that. It's huge. It's the length of a school bus or something I saw um, one news uh, outlet post. Why would a dinosaur need such a long neck? Like what would that have done to help it survive in the world? So I guess the main idea is that they're using these really long necks to um, get to vegetation, so to be able to to feed more efficiently. Um, there's also a couple of other ideas. So um, some scientists think they might have even used them in combat. So, you know, individuals of species might have hit the necks against each other to, um you know, to fight off males out of territories and things like that. That's interesting. And like you mentioned, there's still so much in paleontology we don't know. Like there's so much about dinosaurs we don't know. How many species do you reckon there are that like are undiscovered? Like, is there any idea of whether this is just the tip of the iceberg or do paleontologists think that they've, you know, discovered most of the species that need to be discovered? No, there's a huge number of new species still left to find. I'd say, you know, millions, if not more. Oh, really? Um, you know, we we have a, a very limited view of uh, what was like, what life was like in the past. Often we only have these like small windows into specific time periods, um, and so there's there's huge spans of time um, here in Australia and in places overseas where we know very little about the animals that lived. And so, with the discovery of more fossil sites and more fossils, um, we'll gradually start to get a better and better idea of that. But it's going to be a, a extremely long time before we have a complete list of everything that lived in the past. Oh, it's really interesting stuff. Even people who aren't paleontologists are fascinated by this. Dr. Matthew McCurry from the Australian Museum. Thank you very much for filling us in. Appreciate your time on Hack. Thanks. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.